Hello, everyone. In the next week's episode of the Hewlett Packard Labs podcast from Research to Reality, I have a great honor and pleasure to host Andrew Wheeler. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Dan. Andrew is the director of Hewlett Packard Labs, uh, but he is also HP fellow, which I think is extremely important aspect. Uh, so, Andrew, can you tell us how did you become the director of the labs, and, and also a little bit about your technical background, because. It's not always the case that the director of a lab, especially industry lab, is so technically deep. Yeah, well, I um, you know I started with the company 26 years ago in you know what what I now call classic HP, like the test and measurement you know group. So uh, hired in, wrote you know uh, drivers, software drivers for uh, for instruments at that time. Um, and then after that, took uh, really took the opportunity that a large you know company like HP at the time had to offer. So you know just a lot of opportunities to do a number of different jobs in my my career. Uh, it just so happens I started a couple of months in front of uh, our CEO Antonio. So that's in part why I uh, just you know have a lot of loyalty for the company, and it just uh, you know we've kind of grown up together. And bragging rights too. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, but yeah, so I've had the opportunity to do a number of, of different jobs and, and really worked in research and development, you know, most of my career as an individual contributor. So, uh, you know, technical computing, uh, you know, did, you know, system design, firmware development, uh, worked on a mission critical operating system at, at one point. And then, uh, yeah, a large span of my career working on VLSI programs, everything from, uh, Processors to, you know, memory controllers at the at the time, uh, large node controllers. So, uh, a lot of time in VLSI, which was really a great experience. Which, uh, and then from that point, one of the the managers I had in the business uh, became CTO of the company. And uh, once he became head of labs, he had uh, some new strategic programs and needed some help on technology transfer and. Uh, I think in part since I'd had some good experience with labs in my career and working together, he uh, brought me over as deputy director about uh, a little over six years ago, and um, and then in 2020, um, when uh, the current when the previous CTO retired, uh, that's when I became director. So, how has that technical, deep technical background shaped your view of the roles of the labs, especially with respect to R and D? Technology transfers and things like that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think the first first thing that that really kind of came to mind, especially as being director, uh, is is really just the the sense of responsibility. I think by uh, uh, by corporate archives or Wikipedia, wherever you want to look, I'm the twelfth director of labs, and I do take that as an awesome responsibility when you think about how labs was created. Uh, you know, over 55 years ago, the founders of the company recognized at that time, um, and I think the company, I think they only had like 400 employees at the time, mm -hmm. but they recognized the need to set aside, you know, some capability uh, that could look beyond the day-to-day -day work and, you know, be out there exploring, look what's coming next, looking over the horizon. And, you know, now we look back on that and think, well, yeah, they were just guarding against you know, what we know is the innovator's dilemma. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that really hasn't changed. And so all of my time through all of those different R&D 
uh, units, working on a lot of different products, you see the same thing, right? You get caught up in the uh, evolutionary development of mm-hmm. things and, you know, fighting that fire of, well, okay, we've got a customer escalation on something. And you just, you can't help but then starve the, well, what's coming next or what are those trends that are coming? So, um by living that a lot of my career, I think uh, that, that really has pre- prepared me uh, well for the role in labs and the job that we're asked to do. So you gave us perfect uh, history, how you came to this point. What is your vision for the labs going forward? What kind of leadership would you prefer labs to have? Yeah, um, you, you know, again, I, I, and I, I keep pointing back to our founders because they, they established such a good uh, founding for this. But um, I think it was in a, you know, an all-employee meeting. At one point, Dave Packard said, look, someone asked him, you know, well, why does this company, why does your company exist? What's your, you know, again, before mission and vision statements and all that, that he's like, look, the reason we exist is because we offer something that is unique. And it just so happens to be at this point in time, that's centered around, you know, electronic measurement systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so my vision is, is the same thing, is we have a role to play in providing things that are unique for our company. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, out of my, you know, the leadership team, the, the staff, and all of the researchers that work, that's what we should focus on. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to go focus, this, you know, there's a role to be played in the company on better, faster, cheaper, um, and certainly we should operate with a sense of urgency, but I don't, I don't want to do a me too kind of thing. We mm-hmm. should be looking at things that have that disruptive potential, things that are unique that uh, only we can, we can bring to market. You have very eloquently described the importance of labs for our business, but as a side effect, we're also influencing the whole of the world. What is the importance of labs for the rest of the world? Uh, well, current time, you know, Antonio talks a lot about our purpose, right? Advance the way people live and work. Um, and so, again, we have a role to, to play in that. That's, I think it's pretty simple. It makes it pretty clear. And so that's the kind of impact we want to have. That's who we think about, should think about as our customer base. And if we do that right, it, you know, it's going to hit the world. Yeah. Over the years, there were many labs, many industrial labs, mm-hmm. but that number has shrunk substantially. We're one of the few that are still carrying the flag. Can you comment on that? Uh, you know, that's an interesting comment. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, it, it, it probably depends how you define an industrial lab. So if you were to say, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, kind of like the Bell Labs of the mm-hmm. world, you know, IBM Research, some of these things, if it was, say, centered on long-term research, um, I would probably agree with you there. But, um, but if you look at, well, if you're talking about either advanced development or maybe even applied research, um, you know, we may find that it's actually quite the opposite. Maybe, you know, every company in some way, mm-hmm. you know, probably does a little bit about what we're talking about. It's just that we've got the history and, and kind of that, you know, that 55 years of, of, of legacy and contributions we can point to. But having said that, however a company thinks about, um, 
you know, what their innovation process is or how, how they do things. Certainly some things have changed over the years. Um, you know, whether it's um, may, may, maybe some things just became so expensive that, you know, no single company could go it alone on something. Uh, and so that's why you see various consortiums out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, an IMEC comes to mind on you mm-hmm. think about how expensive you know, uh, material science and silicon processing has become. It, it requires companies coming together. Um, shared investments. In shared investment. Sources. I mean, think about uh, even like the, you know, we were talking in, earlier today about the role of open source, mm-hmm. you know, and I think every, uh, you know, generationally, right, we, we do this ebb and flow of, well, are we, uh, you know, are things centralized or are they distributed? Centralized or distributed? Uh, you know, there was a time when, you know, everything was vertical, right, in, in that respect. And so you had to do it all. Um, but now with something like open source, that provides yet another way to, um, you know, probably accelerate or augment, you know, the capability that these companies have. But, you know, startup communities have also mm-hmm. kind of filled a niche there. We've got worldwide more capable research universities, that capacity has increased over time. So there have definitely been some things that have changed. Um, but I think as a research lab, you know, you know, we've changed as well. And so, um, so you know, in, in some ways, other than, you know, completely eliminating it, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've, we've adapted for some of these new uh, and other methods coming online as well. Can we now focus on specific programs inside of the labs, the specific contributions? Could you give us some examples that you think are really important that will probably uh, describe future products as well? Yeah. Um, well, you know, as, as we were talking about, you know, again, our role in the company is to look, you know, one to two steps ahead, right? Mm-hmm. Looking, uh, you know, beyond that horizon. So the, the beauty of what we get to work with as a company you know, we're, we're doing solutions that span edge, the cloud, to now we're talking, you know, beyond exascale. Um, and so our programs need to touch all of that. So we've got high-touch areas, whether it's in the, uh, the system architecture for, uh, for how those solutions are created, um, you know, the, uh, the, the security aspects of, of, of all of that, what does it mean from a, you know, a programming uh, and just how, again, we look at some of the technical or industry trends that are coming and how do we map that in and, mm-hmm. and start to create a bridge um, to supporting really where the company operates. Let's dig a little bit deeper. You already mentioned the spectrum of things, but one of the differentiating factors of Hewlett Packard Labs is ability to work from materials all the way up through uh, devices, mm-hmm. through hardware architecture, software application services. How is this benefiting uh, the company and, and the labs and the rest of the world? Well, the, the first benefit is by being involved in those different spaces, you know, as, as you say, it, increasingly things are, again, at that solution level. And so for us, it, you know, we have to have a perspective on uh, you know, again, there was a time we were completely vertically integrated, right? In fact, kind of that center part of my career was all about, you know, we did the silicon, we did the operating system, we did the middleware. In some cases, we did the application itself. 
but now with so many more, you know, suppliers out there, with so much more, um, you know, as an industry, how much broader we are today, it's, you know, a lot of it is about integration. A lot of about is, is about the understanding. How do you apply, uh, you know, some of the new technology that's out there, whether we've created it or not. And so unless you're in there in all of those spaces, um, you know, understanding what state of the art looks like, understanding what state of the art can become, we're not doing our job as far as uh, not only creating some of that foundational IP, but you know, we are, we are also looked upon as a resource within the company to provide you know maybe a key point of view on something. Um, and so again, unless you're out there active in the work, active in the community, uh, you know, doing the research, you're just you're just going to be at the surface level. So in other words, what you're saying is like Patrick Scaglia used to say in the past that our role is building this scaffolding because the space is huge. We can't build these huge buildings. We can put scaffolding, pieces, demonstrate how it works and then let products build them. That's a great, I think that's a great analogy. Yeah. Speaking of products, we do R&D, but we don't make products. Uh, our business units do mm -hmm. that. How is that handoff taking place? Where do we stop? Where do they begin? Do we overlap? Yeah, that's that's another great question. And you you know you talked earlier about uh, you know industrial research labs and you know how that's changed over the years. It's been an age old problem in terms of uh, you know we call it tech transfer, or technical transfer. How do you uh, you know, get some understanding or an idea from a researcher such as yourself. How does that ultimately impact a revenue generating product? And, you know, there's no magic wand there. There's no um, singular process that has stood the test of time to say, if you just do this, mm -hmm. it will always work. Uh, and it's for a few reasons. Uh, the first of which is, by its nature, a lot of the projects and things we should be looking at are high risk in nature. Okay, so not everything is going to pan out, uh, but we should certainly get the understanding from it and benefit again from being involved. Mm -hmm. um, but for the ones that you know proceed to a certain point, and we think yes, this has potential, there are a few things that we've learned over the years that work really well. Uh, the one you know one thing is you know engage with that product team you know as soon as possible, mm -hmm. as soon as you think you've got something that hey, I think this could make a difference. Uh, uh, you know, you want to engage with that team as early as possible, make them part of, you know, maybe a proof of concept, uh, something like that. So one of the latest things we've done in uh, partnership with one of our close business units is uh, establish a, kind of this stage gate model together mm -hmm. where as soon as we've hit um, technical viability on something, uh, we've got kind of a joint process we work on where increasingly they take on a larger role to help, okay, do market validation. Now do we need to go do uh, you know, some business incubation work as well? So, um, so that's a, a relatively fresh model we're trying out, again, based on learnings of, of the past. Very, very interesting. Uh, you mentioned universities, open source, startups. There's this huge ecosystem. How are we interacting with that ecosystem? Uh, yeah, so short answer is we, we want interactions with, with all of that because, uh, you know, number one, it, it certainly augments our own subject matter experts. We can't be, 
the the expert at everything. Um, and uh, you know it's critical for us to to be out there because again it's we understand what's being developed as state of the art. Um, if we find fellow travelers, then we can pull resources and, and work together mm -hmm. on something to again advance it and accelerate the work. Uh, but it's it's a critical part because we can't do it all. And uh, by uh, by by touching those various communities. Uh, you know, again, it, it helps inform our own research portfolio because, you know, we may find that, well, look, someone else is already doing this. Yeah. They're three years ahead. Why would we start in there? Mm -hmm. Let's let's pick up where they're at and figure out how to how to accelerate it from there. That makes a lot of sense. Um, we are building uh, general products, but these products are sometimes very well suited for certain verticals. For mm -hmm. example, nowadays, with COVID, uh, medical health is really yeah. important. Could you tell us some examples of verticals that labs has traditionally addressed? Well, I liked, I liked the scaffolding example earlier because in, in large part what we've done is, is we've, we've, supported, we've supported more of the businesses, I would say, in that horizontal fashion. Mm -hmm. and, then, and, then, and then they go target specific verticals. Mm -hmm. but Okay, that, that being said, um, you know, clearly like, you know, right now we're certainly, you know, feeding a number of verticals in the high performance computing sector as an example, uh, you know, verticals in, uh, you know, enterprise computing, mm -hmm. uh, what was once known as kind of mission critical, the mission critical space, but, um, but yeah, high performance computing verticals, um, you know, be it, um, you know, weather simulation, uh, crash analysis, things like that, but we, we probably do a better job of supporting things at the horizontal and then letting those products go, go address specific vertical markets. And these verticals, working with them, usually uncovers the most challenging problems. What are some of the remaining most important technical problems that you think are still open to be addressed? Um, you know, again, it's a, it's a never-ending list, but if I were just say to kind of, you know, top of mind for things that we're focused on, things that, um, you know, we're even, uh, you know, placing maybe uh, greater emphasis on with, within labs, um, you know, the whole space of AI and machine learning is certainly one of them. And yes, there, you know, we've got a lot of history within, you know, academic and, you know, labs and others on, you know, how that's evolved over time, but it really is going to be one of those uh, aspects of technology or, uh, you know, something in the toolbox that we're going to use to uh, address a number of the trends that we see mm -hmm. coming out right now, whether it's, uh, you know, how we process all the data that's coming at us, uh, how we deal at the architectural level with kind of the slowing down of where silicon processing is going. So, uh, and it's a very exciting area, but there's, that's certainly one of the big areas where I know there's a lot of activity uh, going on, certainly outside of our walls that we want to tap into. Uh, and probably the other one I would highlight is just, again, security. Again, mm -hmm. another one of these things that, that spreads across, you know, as a horizontal across many, many things. Uh, but I mean, you know, security from all aspects, you know data management, how we do communication, how we do secure computing. Um, you know, I mean, we 
every week there's a there's a story out there, a headline around you know an intrusion or something. So there are still, I mean, a, a limitless I think uh, invention to be to be had in those two areas right now. When you and me started our careers, there was a lot of standardization efforts. Nowadays, a lot of things are open sourced. How do you see that transition? Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, in fact, I, I go back to my very first, when I started the company, and, uh, you know, one of the big things, these uh, tester instruments, how they talk to one another was uh, across something called HPIB, mm-hmm. was, which was the HP interface bus. It was a little daisy chain mm-hmm. bus. I mean, very uh, basic by today's standards. But, you know, early on, that was an example of the importance of standardization. And like I said earlier, the industry's gone through these cycles where it's become, you know, very proprietary in segments and then kind of opens up. You know, it's a little bit of back and forth. But, you know, certainly standards and open source are here to stay because, again, they're accelerants on everything we do, um, you know, both of those efforts. And, um and yeah, you know, we've been heavily involved in standards throughout my entire, you know, career. And again, it's becoming even more important, not just at kind of the hardware interface level with things like, you know, PCI Express or, you know, the Compute Express link, Gen Z, things like that. Um, standard pinouts, right? The list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, you know, you start thinking about APIs and the value of doing some standardization around that. That, again, is going to unlock a lot of this new capability that we're talking about. I already know the answer to the following question, but I still like to hear it from you. Uh, throughout my career, HP, first HP, then HP was paying for my memberships for IEEE, ACM, and even Usenix. Mm. And even more recently, like a few days ago, we got two uh, HP people got elevated to IEEE fellows. Uh, yeah. We were all very proud of that. But I'd like to hear from you. What is the importance of... Uh, all these professional organizations to uh, our uh, company. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll, you can cover what I miss here. But, you know, my, my perspective is uh, they're critical from, I think, a couple of different areas. Um, you know, the first just starts with professional development. You think about all the resources, the communities that are mm-hmm. created within each one of those, whether it's the journals, whether it's the workshops, uh, you know, the meetups, things like that, that's, that's critical for professional development. And uh, a lot of our, you know, team definitely takes advantage of that. Um, and then, you know, I think even just from a career development, right? I mean, it's, it's, you, you mentioned the two IEEE fellows. Uh, what an incredible recognition of, of accomplishment. And, um, you know, I think for, uh, you know, engineers and scientists, um, there's no better mark, I think, than, uh, you know, kind of a nod from, from a peer of mm-hmm. recognition and acknowledgement of a job well done, you know, career uh, contributions. Uh, it's, it's an incredible, incredibly satisfying part. And it gives a lot of people, it, it's, it gives them something, it's a mark. It's like, okay, I want to get there. And then, you know, my job in part becomes, okay, how do we get you there? How do you... How do we put the right assignments and challenges in front of you so that you can showcase your, your talents? So we are all different. If you look at our labs, we have people from almost all around the world. 
how do we deal with this diversity, equity, inclusion? Yeah, um, for me, Hewlett Packard Labs is a world-class organization. Uh, I'm the 12th, you know, uh, chairman of that, so to speak. And so I want to keep that going, which means I want access to the best talent. I want to be able to attract the best talent. I want to, I, you know, I want to be able to keep them here working on exciting things and then help them develop their careers. Um, so that whole question to me, it, it comes down about, comes down to talent because what I find is whatever your background is and, and part of what influences how you think about things, how you approach a problem, you are a product of your environment. Where did you grow up? Um, you know, you, you bring different insights yeah. to a problem. How you think about things, um, everyone is different in, in that. And so from a diversity standpoint, that, that's how I look at it. And that's why everybody has something unique to bring, right? Man, woman, I, you know, where you grew up, what country you're from, what languages you speak, you, you all have something to, to bring to the table and we want to harness that. So that's why it's a critical part of um, how we operate, how we recruit, and um, you know, how, we, how we look at talent overall. So where did Andrew Wheeler grow up? Ah, good question. Um, uh, actually born in Austin, Texas. Uh, didn't live there very long, just a few years, uh, but grew up in Northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm. and uh, been out now in Fort Collins, Colorado for, well, 26 years since I joined the company. And uh, I really consider myself very blessed because um, you, you get these annual rankings that come out from, you know, different, whether it's uh, lifestyle magazines or travel or something about. It, those two areas have been perennially on, you know, top 10 list of, of places to live. So I've been really blessed to live in some incredible places, but uh, also with the company, I've had you know the opportunity to you know essentially travel the world and um, you know many of the sites that we're we're located at, and um, I mean it's been uh, it's, it's it's just been tremendous. So while I love where I live, look, there are a lot of great places out there across the world as well. Diversity in places too. Diversity not just in places, yeah. Um, being labs director, even being uh, a simple researcher, uh, takes a lot of pressure, puts a lot of pressure on all of us. So how does Andrew Wheeler remove that pressure? What do you do? How do you deflate all that pressure? Oh yeah. In fact, this has been a really good, uh, kind of a point of emphasis, even during, during COVID. I mean, I've always been very active and so you pretty much follow the season and there's something there I like to do. You know, in the summer, I'm a big uh, mountain biker, uh, a new discipline of cycling now called gravel riding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm big into that. And, uh, you know, occasional backpacking trip in the summer with my boys and, uh, you know, maybe a round of golf every once in a while. Uh, the winter, you know, love the snow sports. So uh, downhill skiing, backcountry skiing, cross country. So, um, anyway, a lot of outdoor interest, I guess. Um, but then when I'm stuck inside, uh, you know, I think like a lot of, a lot of people, uh, avid reader. So uh, just grab, grab a good book either. And I'm not one of these, uh, well, electronic format only or hardcover only. I, you know, either one works. 
great lesson of a work-life balance for all of us. Thank you very much, Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Appreciate it.